podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to the Two Footed Podcast. It is Thursday, the 8th of April, and we are brought to you by EPLindex.com in association with our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. It's a virtual privacy network. Allows you to go online, change your location, keeps your data safe. LibertyShield.com, EPL VPN. Get yourself 20% off at checkout. There's hardware and software packages, so take your pick. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. Right, folks, uh, full disclosure, we are recording this on Wednesday the 7th, so I've asked for questions early as I'm taking tomorrow off. Um, Got a bunch of questions in, thankfully enough, so uh, we'll fly through these now. And um, there's some good ones. I had a quick glance. There are some good ones. So Lee Cox has sent three. Um, the first one is, with the investment of Redbird, Redbird Capital and talk of purchasing another club as part of the group, this is for Liverpool, who would you look to purchase and why? So I think purchasing a club in somewhere like Belgium, France, Belgium and Austria, I suppose, on one tier, and then maybe France and Portugal on another tier, because I think the clubs in France and Portugal would be a bit more expensive. Now, Redbird already have investment in, I think it's Toulouse. It's either Toulouse or Bordeaux. Apologies. I know I went over this last week. I can't remember. It's one of those. If that's a starting point, if Liverpool could buy into that club, that would be a really good starting point. And then I'd also like to see them buy into the Austrian league or the Belgian league. Now, I would go Austria or Belgium or a league similar to that because I think it's a really good way to get younger players in from places like Africa and South America where the work permit laws seem to be a little slacker than they have been in England and certainly than they are going to be in England now moving forward. Looking at, at Austria, standardly, or sorry, looking at, at Belgium, standardly age is the one that maybe could be available. They've had some strange ownership, ownership situations in the past. They've been a top club in the league in the past. They've been a club competing at the Champions League level, and everybody remembers the team that had Axel Witzel, Stephen Defoe, and Marouane Fellaini. That was a very good team, and that's what they're capable of putting together. So for me, that would probably be the one I'd look at in Belgium, is standard Liège. You've got a big club, good history, known as the Reds, good stadium, good basis for what you want to build on. I think standard Liège 
would make sense if you were looking at uh, at Belgium. If you were to look at the Austrian Bundesliga, you know you've got massive competition from Red Bull Salzburg. That's going to be difficult to cope with because they're going to be very, very strong no matter what. You don't want to go for a club that's not going to be able to compete. You want to be competitive. You, winning titles is not necessarily the aim, but being competitive is the aim. Ensuring that your players are learning how to win is going to matter. Now, other decent-sized clubs, you could look at maybe Mattersburg, Sturmgrass, club with good history. Rapid Vienna and Austria Vienna are obviously the two the two biggest ones, um, the two most successful uh, clubs in the country. I'd probably look at Austria Vienna, if I'm honest. Austria Vienna is the one that would stand out to me as maybe being worth trying for. I don't know if they'd be available. I'm I'm just speculating. Like Sturmgrass, Austria Vienna, or Rapid Vienna. Any of those really. Sturmgrass maybe have the they might they're the smallest of the three. They might be the easiest to get hold of, but. I think if you could buy Standard Liège, I, I think that would be the one I'd look for. There's a really good recent track record of the Belgian league producing a really high calibre of players. We see how many Belgian players have come to the Premier League or players have come through Belgium. We've seen the way Genk have worked. And Genk could be another option. There's no question they could be another option. But I would like to do it at Standard Liège. I think there's just there's something nice about them as a club. 10 league titles in their history. They've had success. They've won Belgian Cups. They've got to the European Cup Winners Cup final. There's that link there of them being known as La Rouge. I think, I think Standard Liège would be the one. For me, it, it just makes sense. Good stadium, good basis, good reputation, big club, decent fan base. I think they're the one I would look for. Now, if you could have them and the French club, then I think you're really rolling. You get players in, bring them into standard Liège as your first step, into the French league as your second step, and then on to Liverpool. They do, say, two years with standard Liège from 17 to 19, two years with the French club. Then at 21, they've got four years of senior experience behind them. You're bringing them in to Liverpool with players plenty of games under their belt. I think that would be, that for me would be, would be the right pathway. Um, his second question is, as a result of an international tournament, a tactical innovation often comes to the fore or is reborn, such as a player position or formation. What tactical innovation will come about or be reborn as a result of the impending Euros? I think we'll see more teams play with two up front. I think it's trending that way already, but I do think we're going to see more teams play with two up front, especially in this tournament. Aside from that, I think we'll see more of a return to the double pivot midfield rather than three across. Again, I think it's already trending that way. 
But looking around at the main national teams, I think two in midfield is becoming more commonplace. And I think that's another one. So two up front, two in midfield. Getting back to having more of a solid spine in the team, it, it's something I like. I prefer that balance. Now, whatever else you do around it, for me, I, I do like a three at the back, but I also like a box midfield. That's why City playing, I, I know they line up and they show on the graphic as 4-3-3 or 4-2-3-1, but when City play and are in possession, especially when Canseo is in the team, it's a three-box three. That's something I think we'll see more of as well. We'll see more of teams flexing from one formation out of possession to one to, to a different formation in possession. A lot of more basic teams just stay in the one the one formation and that's it. That's how they play. They have that system on and off ball. That's fine. They maybe get more compact and then spread out a little bit. But I think things like what we're seeing Guardiola do uh, will become more commonplace as well. And Lee's final question. This is a difficult one. You're part of a Nile Quinn billionaire Euro investment consortium and are, and are tasked with investing in the League of Ireland to create a sustainable, marketable league that produces international standard players. What is your strategy? So the first thing you want to do in terms of marketing, you've got to tap into the Irish dysphoria. So you've got to tap into the US market the Canadian market, and the Australian market. All three countries are growing in terms of their interest in football. So you've got to find ways to involve yourself in that. And be that friendlies against A-League teams, friendlies against... If you took an all-star team from the Irish League and went and played a bunch of friendlies against MLS teams, a bunch of friendlies against Canadian Premier League teams, and a bunch of friendlies against the A-League, that's, that's a good starting point. There's also the Asian market. Now, how difficult that's going to be to tap into, I don't know. That's not my area of expertise. I don't know what my area of expertise would be, but it's certainly not that. Um, in terms of developing players, academies is going to be the way forward. And I, I've said this before. I think Africa is the real gem in world football right now in terms of player production. So for me, Creating a couple of academies outside of Ireland, one somewhere in mainland Europe, one somewhere in Africa, and using them to find the best young talent. Looking at something like Right to Dream Do and what they've been able to do with Nordelsjand is definitely the method to follow. That pathway that they've created there is excellent. And when you see people like Mohamed Kudus being moved on for like 8 to 10 million to go to Ajax at, at nineteen twenty, when they brought him in for nothing because Right to Dream owned the club, that to me is, is a really, really profitable way of, number one, producing players, and number two, producing money to run the league producing money to fund the different things you want to do. I'd also be looking to obviously develop homegrown Irish players. Said before, I think five academies, one in Ulster, one in Connacht, one in Munster, one in Leinster, and then one in Dublin is the way forward. And trying to produce Irish players in Ireland, rather than having them all go to England at 14, 15, 16, 17, 
and many of them fall on the footballing scrap heap. Develop them in-house, have a competitive league for them to play in, ensure that they're getting high-level coaching. So the other thing you need to do is invest heavily in coaching. There's loads and loads of good young coaches in Ireland. We also have an incredible amount of strength and conditioning coaches, fitness coaches. Tap into that market as well. Tap into that. Let's not have our best and brightest constantly having to go elsewhere to find work. Let's pay them to stay home in Ireland and work in these academies and develop players from 15, 16 on upwards, rather than being always a little bit behind the eight ball. So for me, tapping into the dysphoria is the way I go with marketing. Australia, Canada, and America, the big three. In terms of player development, it's you've got to tap into the African market. I think if you can tap into the South American market, Brazil and Argentina, you maybe leave alone because there's too many big clubs there already bringing in their own players. But places like, I mean, Peru, Paraguay, even Uruguay to an extent, Chile, there's definitely players slipping under the radar. Venezuela is another one where football's on the up. Colombia, perhaps, as well. Um, and again, you, you can open academies in the US, in Canada, in Australia, in Asia. There's an enormous untapped market in, Australia, in, in Asia, an enormous untapped market of players. And one of the reasons that the talent doesn't always shine through is because they don't get the coaching. But if you could put an academy in India or in China and put high-level coaches there, I do think the level of natural ability meshed with that high-level coaching will produce players. So that's where I'd be spending the money. In terms of the league itself, it goes as it goes. As the players come through these academies, I'd maybe institute a draft and have clubs draft players depending on the order they finish. So if you finish bottom of the league, you get the first pick in the draft. If you finish top of the league, you get the last pick in the draft. I think that could potentially work. Um, I'd need to I'd need to really sit down and think with that one. But I enjoyed that question. That was good. Um, Mac Lundberg, with the decline of a lot of the top six this season, what can teams like Villa, Leeds, West Ham, and Everton do to push their way into the top six? And how can ever how can Leicester retain it? Transfers, etc. Is it just the craziness of this season, or do you think they can push again next season? Well, they can push as long as big six clubs continue to fall over themselves. Arsenal, it's been it's been a while since Arsenal were competent. They're a badly run club, a poorly managed club, and they have owners that don't really care. Tottenham got a little bit starstruck with Jose and committed long-term to him. It's probably not the right decision. Liverpool will be fine. Chelsea under Tuchel, I think, are going to be, are going to be good again next season. Um, City are, are going to be great while Pep is there. And they're probably too well run to really fall off too far. United could fall off because they're badly managed, badly run. From a business side, they're brilliantly run. From a footballing side, they're badly run. 
Um, yeah, I think trying, like you're going to have to invest in academies and, and you're going to have to invent, invest in recruitment. If you can produce your own players in-house, which West Ham have always done quite well, that's going to give you a foot up. And they've got that London basin to pull from, like clubs like Arsenal and Chelsea do as well. So you see so many strong academies in London. There's an enormous talent pool. So they've got a big advantage there. Everton, it's difficult for Everton because they do sit in Liverpool's shadow. Now, they've got the plans for their stadium finally uh, with a bit of traction moving forward. And maybe that can you know, boost their income. They do have a good academy. And maybe their path with the academy is to approach young kids and say, look, you can go to Liverpool, you can go to City, you can go to United, but you're never going to play. You come to us, you'll be in the first team at 18, or you'll be in the squad at 18. You know, look at City. They've got one academy player who's a regular. United have two. Liverpool have two. Jones and, and, and Trent, Rashford and Greenwood, and obviously Foden. Everton could be the club that books that and maybe tries to build a team from their own you know, in-house ranks. It's a, it's a long path, though. That's a very long path. In the short term, they can push as long, like I said, they can push as long as the big six clubs continue, continue to fall over. But when a big six club is well-run and well-managed, it's very different for, difficult for anyone to break into that picture. Leicester have been able to do it because there's always been at least one big six club making a mess of themselves. It's generally been Arsenal in recent years, but it was Liverpool for a while. That last season under Rodgers was a disaster. The season after, um, Klopp was focused entirely on the the Europa League. That's the season Leicester won the league. United were awful that year. City were bad that year. Chelsea were bad that year. They took advantage of that. Last season, they almost made top four because... Spurs were awful, Arsenal were awful, United and Chelsea weren't particularly good. But once United and Chelsea got their act together, Leicester fell out of the top four. The big six will always have more money. That is just how it's going to be. Unless some mega-rich owner comes in and buys a club, there's no real way to force yourself into that big six. Leicester are smartly run. They recruit really, really well. And they could push themselves into being part of a top six. But realistically, even with, like, their owners are very wealthy. Realistically, Leicester are never going to be able to maneuver themselves into the big six. Look at the locations of the big six. Manchester United and Manchester City. United, Liverpool and Arsenal are traditional powerhouses. Then look at the other three. Manchester City, mega rich owner, but also location, Manchester, massive city, attractive city to people to come to live in, affordable city to live in as well. And then Chelsea, obviously mega rich owner, but also London, Knightsbridge, wealth, opportunity, Spurs, London, glamour. Rich owner, doesn't put his hand in his pocket all that often. But London and Manchester give those clubs an advantage. 
Leicester's a little bit off the beaten track. It's not one of the big cities in England. It's not a glamour city. There's only really... I mean, Liverpool is glamorous to a certain group of people. It's a great spot to go for a weekend. It might not be everybody's choice of place to live, but it is very well located. Manchester the same. London is obviously the the most glamorous city. Newcastle are the one that I've always sort of looked at and thought, if you've got a competent owner in there, doesn't need to be mega rich. Now, they're going to have to be very rich. They're going to have to be John Henry or Joe Lewis rich anyway to compete. But you, you don't need an Abramovich or a Sheikh Mansour. If they could just get a you know a wealthy owner in who was competent, willing to spend, appointed the right people, had ambition and was aggressive, Newcastle are the one that I could see doing it. West Ham, the problem is they're always going to be the fourth biggest club in London. Everton will always be the second biggest club in, in Liverpool. And Liverpool, I don't think, is big enough to sustain two massive clubs the way Manchester is. Now, I could be wrong about that. And in the 80s, of course, Liverpool and Everton were the two top teams. So, absolutely fair. But Everton fell off. I don't think City are falling off anytime soon. Again, if Everton got a mega... Now, they do have a very wealthy owner. If they got a mega-rich owner who was willing to pump money in, anything can happen for any club. But I don't know that Everton would be a club that will attract that type of owner. Chelsea attracted Abramovich because of London, because of the lifestyle and what he could have around Chelsea. The Mansours looked at a bunch of clubs. City was the easiest to buy at the time because Shinawatra was having problems in Thailand with the authorities and his, his assets had been frozen. So they took advantage of that. But now, if a mega-rich investor was coming in, if another Saudi prince or the Qatari government or the the Chinese Sovereign Wealth Fund were buying into a club, I think they'd look at Liverpool, they'd look at United, and then after that, they'd look at Arsenal. And maybe Spurs. They're not going to buy City, they're not going to buy Chelsea, because those clubs won't be for sale. Well, maybe they would, but I don't think they will. After that, I, I think they're more likely to look at a Newcastle or an Aston Villa in Birmingham than they are at a Leicester, an Everton, or a West Ham. Um, but money is money is what drives it. It's always going to be about money. You're always going to have to be one of the wealthiest clubs. Leicester are very, very well run, but that Leicester team is going to break up at some point. And it's going to be on them to continue to replace players. Uh, Lisa Marie Hanahan. Curtis Jones seemed to have, seems to have disappeared the last few weeks as players are coming back into the team. Do you see much playing time for him for the remainder of the season? What do you think the plans are, are for him next season? Now, I will say, I think Curtis was forced into playing a lot more minutes than was planned this season because of the injuries. And that's probably... Part of why we're not seeing as much of him right now is that they probably got him on a minutes restriction for the season um, as a young player. So maybe he's already pushing close to what they were looking at as his max. I do think we'll see more of him this season. And I'm quite hopeful that we'll see him in a midfield with Fabinho and Thiago. Because I think then you can give him more freedom to play as more of an attacking midfielder. 
hopefully in something like a 4-2-3-1 rather than the flat three. If you do that, you'll get more out of him. For next season, again, it all depends on shape. If we're playing the flat three, I think he will probably compete with Henderson for the right-hand sided role in the midfield three. I think they'll split this season between them. Henderson's injuries, his unsuitability for certain games, paired with you know Jones's youth and his unsuitability for certain games, I think you'd find that they'd be kind of a, a platoon in in one midfield position. If it's four two three one, he could potentially work his way into the starting team. Maybe not next season, but the season after, perhaps. It, it, it all depends on, on system. It really does. But I do think we'll see more of him this season. I do think he's probably just been rested right now. He's also, he played for, for England in the, on the 21s. So he might just be getting a bit of a rest now. But we could have done with him last night. We could have done with him on the pitch last night. He wouldn't have done any worse than the lads that were out there. Um, I'm going to get this name right. J. Reed, 1987 asks Kevin De Bruyne, where does he rank among the midfield greats to play in the Premier League? It's difficult. I mean, in terms of talent, he's as talented as pretty much anyone we've seen. He doesn't have Gerrard's physical gifts, but from a technical standpoint, he's very similar. Very similar level to Gerrard. Maybe a better eye for a short pass. Doesn't have Gerrard's power. Similar level long passing. Gerrard is a better shooter of the ball. De Bruyne takes a better set piece. I think De Bruyne is more tactically intelligent than Gerrard was. But Gerrard was more of a match winner. Gerrard was a moments player. Big, big moments when Stevie Gerrard stepped up. Um, De Bruyne has also played in much better teams than Gerrard had. He's more talented than Lampard. It's not close. Lampard had the better career because he was only asked to do one thing, really. I would say he's in the top. I mean, for me, Keane and Vieira are the top two. And then everybody else falls in behind them. But Gerrard was never a centre midfielder. Neither really was Lampard. Lampard was more of an attacking midfielder when he was good. If you look at his early days at West Ham as a centre midfielder, he was good but not great. As an attacking midfielder, he was great. Jared was a was a world class attacking midfielder, world class right winger, never particularly good in central midfield. De Bruyne is better in central midfield than either of them. Probably a better right winger than Gerard. Not as good as a ten. Not as much of a goal scorer as Lampard as a ten, but far more of a creator. I would have him above Sesk. I would have him about equal with Paul Scholes. I would say he's top six midfielders. Attacking midfielders, I think he's top three. Attacking midfielders, I think he's top three with Gerrard and Lampard. Gerrard first, Lampard or KDB second, and the other one third. Depends on what you want. Do you want goals or do you want to sit? Do you want creativity? Lampard was was creative, but Lampard most of his assists came from set pieces. I, I, I'd rather have De Bruyne in my team than Lampard. I think he offers more. I, I'll, I'll put him 
ahead of ahead of Lampard, about level with goals just behind Gerrard. Um, Conor Sheehan asks, have we seen the best iteration of Klopp's Liverpool? I don't know is the answer. I genuinely don't know. Um, the impact of Van Dijk and the absence of Van Dijk is just is immeasurable on this thing. You're talking about the best defender in the world, who's also the leader of the team, the best player in the team, the best communicator in the team, the best organizer in the team, and the standard setter for the team. So I don't know. We won't know until we see Virgil back in the team. Now, I will say, I do think the best of Firmino is gone. Mane's had a very bad season, but I think that might be long COVID more than anything else. But I, I do think it's potentially Mane's last season. The defence will still has room to get better because Trent is only going to get better. Robertson's probably hitting his peak about now. I think once Ger- once uh, Virgil's back, him and Allison are a different level. That right side centre back role has always been problematic. It's been Lovren, it's been Gomez, it's been Matip, it's been you know constant injuries or just Lovren being awful. If they can get someone in that just solidifies that position and and it looks like it, it will be Kanate, then I think that boxes that off. And he can take them to a new level. Fabinho and Thiago have the potential to be far better than any midfielder Liverpool midfield Liverpool have had if they're used correctly. And by that, I mean if they're used as a two. I still think he wants to get to 4-2-3-1 or 4-4-2. I think he's been trying to do it for years. You look at some of the players he's tried to buy. You look at the players he has bought. He's been buying midfielders that are suited to a double pivot. He tried to buy a couple of starting attackers that would have started in with Mo, Bobby and Mane. So I think he has been looking to do that. Nabil Fakir obviously been the the obvious one. Um, I don't know if we've seen the best iteration. That's That's the honest truth. I do think when you look at certain players, there probably are at their best or on the decline. So maybe there's one more year of of what can be the best version. But I, I won't know until I see Van Dyke. Give me give me 20 minutes of the first Van Dyke game and I'll have more of an idea. Because it's all going to depend on what Virgil Van Dyke comes back. If he comes back the same as he left, then no, I don't think we have. I still think there's more to come. If we've seen the best of them Maybe, maybe. Now, if he's 90% and we can improve in other areas, I mean, the midfield has never been a strong area. That right centre-back area has always been problematic. If you can improve those two areas, upgrade on Bobby, get a goal scorer in the team, then there's room for room for growth. Um, Adam Hanlon, how likely do you think it is that uh, Navi Keita leaves in the summer? Given Wijnaldum is already off and Milner will be 36 and Ox is injury prone too, is two midfield signings realistic in your opinion when it's said defence and attack will be our priority? Um, I don't know. With Naby, I would like to see Naby sold more for Naby's sake than anything else. Um, he is 
he's the most gifted midfield player at Liverpool, but he's also the most fragile. Every time he gets a good run of form, his body lets him down. He's been incredibly unlucky at the club. And I don't know that Klopp has ever fully figured out how to use him. I mean, he bought him as a player that had played specifically in a midfield two or as a 10 and has tried to shoehorn him in as a number eight in a position that doesn't really suit him. So I, I don't know what what the thought process behind sticking with a three when you bought Naby and Fabinho, presumably to play in a two because they're both players that came after playing in a two. Fabinho's adapted because it's easier in his role. For Naby, it's much more difficult. I would sell him. I would sell him. I don't know if it's realistic. I don't know what the price would be. They paid $58 million for him. They'd obviously take quite a big loss. There'll definitely be clubs interested because he's still very highly rated. He is only 26. So there's still, you know, there's still time for him to come around and be the player that everybody saw and be in the Bundesliga. And remember, every club in Europe was in from at that point. So if Liverpool put him for sale and were willing to take 25 million, I think you'd get interest. I really do think you'd get interest. You'll get a club that thinks we can rehabilitate him and sell him in a, in a year for 50 million. Um, I don't know in terms of what the, uh, like, you know, it said that defense and attack would be the priority. That's, that's journalists guessing because not one of these journalists have really had a clue since Klopp and Edwards got into cahoots. They haven't been briefed at all. Um, Paul Joyce is really the only one with any sort of insight into the club. And you look at the Canati deal, it was Ornstein that broke that. Now, he'll have, he'll have gone to Pierce, and Pierce will then have asked around. But Ornstein had that, and he probably got it from the life. He probably got it from Canati's people uh, initially. But I, I would say that there's, there's definitely interest in midfielders. There's definitely one or two that have been strongly looked at. So is it realistic? It depends on how ambitious the owners want to be and how aggressive they are. Um, MTUSA, how do you think next year's AFCON will impact Liverpool's transfer plan in the summer? Will teams in general stay away from players they know will be missing for a month or more? Uh, I think Liverpool's plans for the will be impacted by the AFCON depending on whether... Sadio Mane and Naby Keita stay at the club. If one or both of those leave, I think they will be more open to bringing in an African player. Um, if they're staying at the club, then, yeah, they may be hesitant because it is a bit much to lose players for a month in the middle of the season. The AFCON is so stupid. Why? Like, I understand it has to because of the heat. But, you know, still, you're you're actually harming the players' careers. Um. Mr. Feeling all right. After what you saw on the first leg, how would you set up the squad and what changes would you make for the second leg against Real? Um, honestly, I think I'd start Ben Davies in the second leg. And I know that sounds mental, but he couldn't be much worse than Nat Phillips. And I don't think you need and Nat Phillips type against Real Madrid. It's not like they're a team of giants. 
I think Davies is a ball player, someone with a bit of pace at the back could be a big help, especially when they're going to try and play long balls in behind and then running off the back with the likes of Vinicius. I think I'd be inclined to consider Davies. Now, to do that, he has to play against Aston Villa this weekend. So you've got to go Trent, Quebec, Davies, and either Robertson or Simicus this weekend. Robertson will start the Real game. I'd be inclined to start Simicus this weekend. But if you're going to start Phillips, surely you want him getting to know his left back and his centre back. Or sorry, if you're going to start Davies. I just think his pace will be more beneficial. And Nat Phillips got so badly exposed. Like, you rarely see a lad look that far out of his depth. He looked panicked in every single situation. Because he knew he wasn't good enough to be on the field. Um, I'd go double pivot in midfield. I'd play Thiago and, and Fabinho. Jota off the left. I'd be inclined to play Shakiri off the right. And then Firmino behind Salah. Now, Firmino's been awful for most of the season. Was awful for most of the last season as well. But he has looked better in recent weeks. So maybe play him as a 10 and Salah as a 9 and go 4-2-3-1. Shaq in for a bit of extra playmaking. Or if you're worried about Trent, play Ox there. And Ox will... Always track back. He's more than happy to put the work in. But yeah, I think I think you have to change the shape. You can't go in and do the same thing again. Um, Ross, Ross Blake asks, what do you think Klopp will do with the midfield? Do you think there will be a change of shape or will 4-3-3 four, three, three be our default formation next season? I'm really hoping for a change of shape. The 4-3-3 three, three, three hasn't worked this season at all and teams have figured it out and the problem is Wijnaldum has aged and slowed and is leaving Henderson has aged and slowed and is injury prone the other players at the club like Thiago's not suited to a three Naby's not suited to a three Ox was suited to a three but now is always injured Milner's too slow and he's never really been good enough to play in midfield for a good team um, Curtis Jones isn't really suited to 4-3-3 Fabinho has adapted the best so unless you're going to go and buy a couple more in midfield to get back to the old way of playing that high intensity press and there's limited players that can do that for you but the fellow that came off the bench last night for Real uh, Fede Valverde, he'd be one that could um, Jan Hel Herrera could, but he's probably not technically ready for a move to Liverpool. Bubakari Samari could, but again, maybe not quite ready to be a starter for Liverpool. Renato Sanchez could do it, but he's injury prone. Pellegrini could do it. Italians don't generally do all that well outside of Italy. The same with Berea. So. It's hard to find the midfielders. I mean, Decoure maybe, but I mean, you, you give up quite a bit from a technical standpoint. But he is effective. I, I'm hoping for a midfield change. I really am. I'm hoping that he'll commit to 4-2-3-1 or 4-4-2. Play Thiago and Fabinho. 
Virgil and whoever. That's your defensive box. Canate and Virgil, Thiago and Fabinho. That's your defensive box. You've got your two wing-backs, Trenton and Robbo. You just let them go the way they always have. And then you've got a front four. Either a three behind a one, two out, two in, or a two-two. And you press using them. You press using your fullbacks and the front four. I'm I'm really hoping he changes it. I, I really think the players are more suited to playing a double pivot now. The only midfielders we've had at the club that haven't been suited to a double pivot have been Henderson and Milner, both of whom are awful in a two. Um, Ox, but Ox is always injured, so why would you take it? And he can play as a winger. He is more naturally a winger anyway. So I've never really understood the fascination with 4-3-3. It's not better to press out of. It just isn't. People say it is. It's not. Um, Yeah, I'm hoping for a a change. Um, My surname is Khan, too, because his first account, my surname is Khan, got, um, got suspended. Um, is Mane finished? Was the Madrid game the last chance saloon for Naby? And should Liverpool buy Quebec? To answer in reverse order, yes, they should buy Quebec. Was it the last chance saloon for Naby? It felt like it, but it wouldn't surprise me if Klopp started him at the weekend because it's Klopp and he does mad things. And is Mane finished? No, I don't think he is. I genuinely think this is long COVID. Because look at Trent post-COVID and look how long it took him to look like a competent footballer again. Um, I hope I hope that's the case anyway. Uh, Ross Wood, Standerman 60. In light of the relatively strained finances of most football clubs, how do you see the summer of market panning out? At the moment, there's a lot of noise around Haaland and none of the clubs linked seem to have the 100 plus million required to make a deal happen. I don't think a deal happens for him. And I don't know that any major deals happen this summer. Unless we start seeing a bigger increase in player trading, where let's just say, as an example, Manchester City want Erling Haaland. And Dortmund are like, well, the price is 150 million and City can't pay over 75 for whatever reason. Their accounts, because that's kind of the, the limit they've always put on themselves. Well, look, City own a number of players that they don't use who would be very, very good additions for Borussia Dortmund. I mentioned Yangel Herrera earlier on. He'd be a great fit with Dortmund. Great fit under Marco Rose. Maybe they say, look, he's 20 million. Let's take that off. So now it's 130 million plus Herrera. How else do we get this down? Uh, Lucas Mchea, the guy on loan at Anderlecht, he's a good player. He could be somebody that Dortmund would have an interest in. Maybe Zinchenko someone they would have an interest in. Dortmund need a goalkeeper. Maybe they'd be interested in Zach Steffen, who's better than the guys they currently have. So maybe we see more clubs start to use player trading as more of an option to reduce fees. Like, for example, let's say Liverpool want to buy Mbappe. Well, Liverpool don't have 150 million, but they might have 
50 million. And maybe they can convince PSG that what they really need is to take Sadio Mane and Naby Keita. And they do those two and, I don't know, 60 million? Is that, that's about 150 million, I'd say. Seven, 60 million, 50 million, maybe? I think that's the only way we see really big deals happen this summer, personally. I think we'll see a lot of movement. I think there's going to be clubs forced to sell players under value in a lot of circumstances because their own finances are so messed up. But I, I don't think we're going to see mega deals. I, I could be completely wrong. Maybe we will. Maybe City will just go all in. Maybe PSG will dump, do something mental. Maybe Real Madrid have a car parking space that the Spanish government just must own. And there's a, a little bit of chicanery there. Maybe Barcelona's credit line gets extended and, and they can spend big on somebody. Maybe. But... I do think we're probably more likely to see smaller transfers, like a lot of smaller transactions, 15, 20, 25 million pound kind of range, and some player trading. I think player trade, because remember, player trading can be really creative because City can say, okay, what we actually did was we paid 100 million for Erling Haaland. Or we, so we can we paid 150 million for Erling Haaland, but Dortmund paid us 70 million for Herrera, Zinchenko, and Stefan. And Dortmund can say no, they actually gave us 200 million, and we paid out 50. So they can fiddle their books in different ways, come to some sort of common ground. And make it work that way. That's the only thing I can see happening this summer. I, I, I'm confused as to how this this summer window is going to work, to be honest. Because there's a lot of clubs going to be very hardly, very hard hit in their, their latest accounts. Uh, David Dupreeze asks, just help me understand why we didn't adapt better during the game against Madrid. You could tell early on their tactics were killing us. Yeah, I mean... Don't, uh, Real played 40 long balls, I think, in the first half. So basically, Real took a quick look at us, saw that we weren't pressing, saw a high line, and just started clipping the ball in behind. And Liverpool didn't adapt at all. Now, part of that is Klopp's stubbornness. Uh, Part of it is Klopp trying to let the players figure it out for themselves. Part of it is just that Real Madrid have some great players. And the three that played in midfield are all great players. Modric is, is an all-timer. Cruz is an all-timer. Casemiro is one of the best defensive midfielders in the world. Maybe top two, top three. Uh, has been for a long time as well. So, you know, I I do think it is a kind of half and half. Like Klopp did try and change things. It didn't work. But he's also quite stubborn. And he's quite set in how he wants to play. And he wants to use the high line. And we saw it against Villa early in the season as Liverpool continued to concede goals and ended up conceding seven. And he just stood there with a high line. It was like watching Hasenhutl when Spurs scored five on Southampton and you're screaming at him to drop his defensive line. And he just ignores it and just keeps going. A little bit too a little bit too dogmatic is, is the real reason. Um <laughs> 
Felix from Looks Good on Paper wants to know three blues that I wish had been reds. Um, is this current or all time? If it's if it's current, I would take Richarlison, Alan, and Mason Holgate. If it's all time, or at least the time I've been watching, Lukaku for sure. I always liked Neville Southall. So probably Neville Southall. Though his best years were we had Grobelar, so you know what, that's fine. I'll take Nigel Martin. Um I always liked Nigel Martin, a very, very good goalkeeper. And Seamus Coleman. Now, I know he's still playing, but Seamus Coleman was the best right back in the league for a few years and uh, before his leg break. And Liverpool had Glenn Johnson, who was awful. So I'll take Seamus Coleman, I'll take Nigel Martin, and I'll take Lukaku from the last, what, 20 years? Um, yeah, that, they'll work for me. Um, Tom on the Cop asks, decision based on player only, no financial influence, who are you taking, Sancho or Rafinha? For for in general, Sancho, because if I can get ten to twelve years of Sancho, that's the winner for me. But for this Liverpool team, I take Rafinha. The reason being is he's closer to hitting his peak years, and Liverpool have a short window with Salah, Van Dijk, Allison, Thiago, Fabinho, Andy Robertson, all players late twenties pushing thirty. So Rafinha, who's 24, will turn 25, I think, in December, just fits in better with that timeline where he can be a massive player for the next few years. Now, Sancho can be as well, but at his age, he's going to have more inconsistencies in his game. I think I would take Rafinha for this Liverpool team. In general, if I was starting a team from scratch, I'd take Sancho because I think... The potential with Sancho is off the scale. But for right now, I take Rafinha. Uh, Emmett, a.k.a. Emmett, Emmett, a.k.a. Emmett, asks, where would Modric rank as the best in the best central midfielders of all time? Also, who would be in your top five? Um, I mean, it's it's hard. He He's definitely up there. He's an all-timer. There's no question. What he's done at Real, what he did at Spurs, how good he's been for Croatia, the fact that he won... Uh, the Ballon d'Or, he has to be in that mix. He just has to be. I think I would put him just slightly behind Iniesta. Because I think Iniesta just could do more things with the ball in terms of, he's a great passer, but he was an incredible dribbler. Modric is a good dribbler, better passer than Iniesta, but I don't think the gap is as big as the dribbling side. I think Iniesta was a better defensive player as well in terms of blocking passing lanes, his positional sense. But there's no doubt Modric is an all-timer. He's he's an incredible footballer. He has been for years, from, from Zagreb to Spurs and on. Um, my top five. Redondo. It depends on what you mean by central midfielder. If I just talk central midfield and not attacking midfielders, because if it's attacking midfielders, obviously Zidane. But if I just go with central midfielders who've kind of played in, in a two, I'll go Redondo, 
Lothar Mateus Rijkaard Keane Busquets they'd be my top five in terms of centre midfielders can play in a double pivot can play as a as a as a sitting midfielder they'd be my top five Xavi's obviously as good as most of them but Xavi was I think best in the box midfield for Spain him and Iniesta played ahead of Alonso and Busquets I think that's the best Xavi I I I always felt that Xavi was better for Spain than for Barca. And he was incredible for Barca. But I always preferred him for Spain. Same with Iniesta. I just loved him in that midfield. Um, but yeah, they'd be my five. Um, Callum asks, how do you compare the quality of the top teams around Europe compared to what they were uh, 10 to 15 years ago? It's tough because if you look at the, the leagues in general, so say Serie A, for example, was much stronger 15 years ago because that was pre-Calciopoli. So you had a great Juventus, you had a great Milan, you had a, a good Fiorentina, you had a good Lazio, you had uh, a good Inter Milan. Now you've got a good Inter and the rest are all kind of average. Uh, Milan are okay, but they're still a work in progress. Juve are falling off. There's no great team in Serie A now. In Spain, the middle of the 2000s, so we're looking, 15 years ago is 2006. Atletico were poor. Real were rebuilding. They were between the the Zidane, Figo, Galactico era and the Cristiano era. So they they are much, well, they became much better. Now they've kind of dropped off again and they feel like they're between eras again. Barca obviously exploded and went nuclear from about 2006 under Rijkaard then under Pep, and they've been great since. And obviously now they're second in the league. They're not as good. This Barca team is probably slightly better than that Barca. Would it be, though? The 06 team. No, I think I'd take 06. And the big reason is you had a young Iniesta, a young Messi, uh, a young PK, a Busquets wasn't even in the mix yet to be fair neither was PK or Messi but that was a young team with all these great players about to come into it now I mean they've got Fatty they've got Pedri but I don't think they're as strong Liverpool are better United are much worse Arsenal are worse Chelsea are worse Spurs are about the same City are much better I think overall in the Bundesliga Dortmund are probably about the same, maybe a bit worse. Bayern, Bayern are better. Bayern have been great for 25 years, but Bayern are probably better now. PSG are obviously much better. Marseille are probably worse. Lille are better. They're not a major club, though, like a mega club. I would say overall, the biggest clubs, the, the 10 or 12 biggest clubs, I would say there are more of them that are, are worse now than there are those that are better now than they were 15 years ago. I hope that answers the question. It's a bit rambly, but I, I hope you kind of get the gist of what I mean. Uh, and and Cal, uh, Dunno96, or Dunno96, um, 
why do you feel there seems to be less world-class players around these days as opposed to how many seem to be playing in the past? Do you feel it's due to a change in how players are trained or is it a case of looking back, rose-tinted glasses? No, I, I don't think it is rose-tinted glasses, if I'm honest. I don't think it is. I genuinely think there's less world-class players and I think it is down to player development. I think players are getting rushed more now. I feel like two things, right? Managerial culture is has become far more win now. There's far fewer managers willing to take on and build something because most of them don't get the time. The development of the Champions League and the, the money involved means that you have to be in the competition. So managers at bigger clubs aren't getting three and four years to build a project. Klopp is a rarity. There's very few managers that will get what Klopp got when he took over at Liverpool. And I think for that reason, we're not seeing the development of as many world-class players because they're not getting into the team and being allowed to make the mistakes in the team. They're getting shunted off on loan. Then they get sold. They drop down a level. They don't get a chance to come back up. They get labelled a flop and that's them done. I do think there's less world-class players. I also think that some of the talent from certain countries has dried up. Italy is not producing the same calibre of players as they used to. Spain not producing the same calibre of players as they were. Say Italy in the 80s and 90s, Spain 10 years ago. England has had this massive dip. I went through this a while back. England used to always have a great spine. There was always a great English goalkeeper. There was a great English centre-back. There was a great English midfielder and there was a great English striker. Harry Kane is a great striker. England's best midfielder over the last, for, for, say, from the last 10 years is probably Jordan Henderson, who probably has four caps in a previous generation. There's no great English centre-backs right now. Esri Cons is the best of them. He's not a great centre-back yet. Might get there, might not. He's very good. He might get great, but he might just be very good. None of the rest of them are very good. They're good, they're average, they're poor. There's no great English goalkeeper. Nick Pope is good. Henderson is good. Forster, Pickford, Butland didn't develop because of the ankle injury. They're they're average, they're bad. So there's an issue. The Germans, they had a great generation. It seems to be drying up a little bit. There's not a huge amount of elite German talent on the horizon. Musial has won, but he was formed in England. Um, Florian Wirtz has won. Havertz should still become a great player, I think, with the right management and the right coaching, which I hope he gets from Tuchel. But you look at the major countries, and then you look at Brazil and, and Argentina, and you just you're not seeing the same level of of production coming through. Um. I do think a lot of it is also the internet because we're far more aware of players now. We see more of the flaws in them too. And those flaws get highlighted at a younger age. And there's no real surprise. Like I remember the first time I saw Rivaldo play and he just signed for Deportivo La Coruña. And it was when Sky used to always have the, the late game on the Saturday night. Um, and I, I can't for the life of me remember who they were playing, but I remember watching this guy and thinking, like, this is this guy's unbelievable. Where have they found him? Like, you used to read, like, World Soccer Magazine, and you'd, you'd read about players. And I used to read it religiously. And he never was a player that I'd seen or heard mentioned. And he was 24 when he arrived. 
from Brazil. Now, if a player doesn't come to Brazil until the 24, they don't really get the opportunities. Now, they almost have stayed too long for whatever reason, whether it's coaching, whether it's a lack of opportunity, I don't know. But it, it to me, managers are being pressured too much to get into the Champions League and they're not giving young players enough of an opportunity at the big clubs. At the smaller clubs, big players have been rushed through too quick, too quickly because what's happening is agents have all the power. So a player's 18, the agent goes to the manager and says he needs to be in the first team. Manager says, well, he's 18. Yeah, nobody needs to be in the first team or he's going to leave. What do you mean he's going to leave? Well, he's going to go somewhere else because Liverpool or Man United or Man City are willing to pay him 60 grand a week and you're paying him five. And if he's not playing here, he's happier to sit on the bench there and collect all that money. I think that's part of it as well. Like, look at the Haaland thing. The gun round, uh, Mino and his dad asking for 600 grand a week after tax as well as 20 million for each of them. Like, that type of thing spoils, it just spoils young players. He's going to be great regardless, but, you know, if it's happening with him, it's happening with them all at different levels. Um, Alison, Alison esque asks, what would your ideal 23-man squad for the Euros look like? And why is it that pundits like Carragher and Neville overlook overseas players like Sancho and Tamori when both have done well so far in the respective leagues? Because they don't watch those leagues. Simple as that. They don't watch them. The only time they're aware of those players playing or those clubs playing is the Champions League. They don't watch a minute of Serie A or of the Bundesliga or of La Liga. Um, my ideal squad. Right. It's a 23-man squad. I go two 11s and a third goalkeeper. So three goalkeepers... Nick Pope, Dean Henderson. I'd probably go with Fraser Forster because he's he's taken the position of Alex McCarthy. I would have gone McCarthy early in the season. I, I just can't bring myself to bring Pickford. He makes far too many mistakes. Sam Johnson's not had a good season. Ramsdale's been awful. <clears throat> I could be talked into bringing a young goalkeeper for the experience. Someone like a Joseph Bursick for the experience of the event, knowing I've got my two first-choice goalkeepers. So maybe I'll just bring a young goalkeeper. Um, so I could, Freddie Woodman will be another one. He's he's had quite a good season for Swansea, though they're in a bad run. Maybe him. In fact, I'll go him. Freddie Woodman is my third keeper. Um, two right-backs. Trent is one. That's not even open for debate. Trent is the best right-back in the Premier League. Trent is the best, one of the best right backs in the world. Trent is one of England's three best players. So Trent is in. Um, as a backup to him, I'd probably go with Kyle Walker. I'm not a big fan, but he's experienced. He can play in a three, so it gives me flexibility. So he'd be my, he'd be my pick there. At left-back, Luke Shaw's been the best left-back in the country this year, so I'll go him, and I'll take Baki Osaka as the backup because he can play in a bunch of different positions, and he gives me another attacking option while also giving me cover at left-back. Four centre-backs. Esri Konza is the first one on the plane, not even open for debate. 
After him, it's tricky because nobody's really had a standout season. Lewis Dunk's been quite good, but Brighton have been quite poor. Michael Keane's been good in spells, but he's been a little bit inconsistent. I, James Tarkovsky is coming regardless. I know he's not everybody's favourite, but as a pure defender, I think he's the best of those pure defensive bunch. So I'll bring him. He's a good situational defender for me. I would bring Tamori because I think he's playing well for Milan. I'd probably go Lewis Dunk. I probably would go Lewis Dunk. Because I think you can go Konza and Dunk as Konza and Dunk as your starters, or Konza and Tamore, or Konza and Tarkovsky, or Tarkovsky and Dunk in a game where you want to sit a bit deeper. Maybe you push Trent into midfield, put Konza right back. I'd go I'd go Dunk and Tarkovsky, Tamore, Konza. Konza's a starter, and the other three can fight for the other position. Shaw left back, Trent at right back. Um, midfield, I think four three three is probably it's probably the best option. Um, no, actually, it's not because I don't like four three three. But for what England have, because I don't see two midfielders that England have that can play in a two, bar Rice and Bellingham, and I'm not really sure I'd feel comfortable going into a major tournament with those two as my starting midfield because of their age and lack of experience. But if you play a three, you're kind of limiting yourself Rice is in Phillips is in Phillips is the backup to Rice Bellingham and Henderson let's just go with that that's the midfield four Um, allows me then to play to bring kind of six attackers no eight attackers yeah, that's more what I want, isn't it? I want more more attackers. I'll probably go. I'd probably go Mason Mount will be in the squad, and I think he's deserving based on this season. And he gives you flexibility because he can play in a three, or he can play off the striker. So you can play four two three one, or you can play four three three with him. Um, Sancho without question, Sterling without question. Kane without question and Rashford without question. So I'm starting Sancho one wing, Sterling the other, Kane and Rashford up front. I'll take Watkins, I'll take Calvert-Lewin, Mount, as I mentioned. And based on this season, I take Jack Grealish over Mason Greenwood because Greenwood is disappointed and I think Grealish has been better. So... I've got Grealish and Mount kind of as the backup wide players, but obviously they're not going to play. Well, Grealish can play off the left, but it gives you the option of playing with both of them as twin attacking midfielders in a in a box midfield. You can play them as in a diamond midfield. You can play them as a 10 and a 4-2-3-1. I have Saka as natural width cover in wide positions. I've also got the factor that Ollie Watkins can play wide. Calvert-Lewin gives me that kind of target man off the bench who can... If you need to go route one, you can go route one with Calvert-Lewin or you can just pump balls into the box with them from the delivery you'll get from Trent. Um, so, yeah, I think that would be my squad. Pickford, Henderson, Freddie Woodman, Trent, Kyle Walker, 
Konza Tarkovsky, Dunk Tamore, Shaw Saka, Rice Bellingham, Henderson Phillips, Sterling Sancho, Mount Grealish, Kane Rashford, Calvert-Lewin and Watkins. I, I think that's what I would go for. Based on this season, I think that's what I'd be inclined to do. And I think I'd start 4-4-2. Go, just go with, tra- like, not a traditional 4-4-2 because you're going to have an inverted winger. But I, I think that's what you do. And you let your wingers play out to in. Sancho and Sterling. Kane and Rashford up front. I think you've got a little bit of everything with that. You've got Rashford's pace, dribbling ability. Kane has everything except the pace. You get goals from wide. I'll go Rice and Bellingham in midfield. I know they don't have the experience, but I think that's just what I'd go with. Rice and Bellingham. Let Bellingham go box to box. Shaw's going to stay. So when Trent pushes forward in attack, which he's going to do nonstop, as Sterling cuts in off the right wing. Sancho can hold the width on the left. Sterling will move in and almost make it a three-man front with Sterling, Kane, and Rashford. Trent is like a right winger. Sancho is a left winger. Bellingham pushing into the box. I've left out Phil Foden. Do you know what? I'm leaving Grealish at home, and I'm bringing Phil Foden. Because I have to bring Phil Foden. I think he's I think he's so special. He's not going to start for me, but if Phil Foden is a game changer off the bench, sorry, Jack Grealish, you have had a good season, but this kid's more special. But yeah, um, Bellingham pushing on into the box. And then you've, so you've got a, a six-man attack, and then Rice with Konza, Dunk, and Shaw, or Konza, Tarkovsky, and Shaw as my kind of sitting back three. I think that would work. I don't know how well it would work, but I think on on the field, they they would work. They would complement each other. Whether they're good enough to win anything, I don't think so. I don't think England have the defenders to win anything right now. Um, If Joe Gomez was fit, I'd be more enthused by it, but the attack is is special. There's a lot of talent there. And as I said, like I've got Saka to come on, Foden, Mount, Watkins, and um, and Calvert-Lewin. So I've got quality and variety in, in depth. So yeah, that would be that would be mine. Let me know yours though. Do tweet me. Let me know what your squad would be. Um, who would you appoint if you were... Who would you appoint as the director of football and manager of Arsenal if you were in charge and why? Um, well... First of all, it depends on whether I'm in charge for comedic purposes or actually to do the job. Because if, if, if I'm in charge as Liverpool fan, I stick with Edu and I stick with Mikel Arteta because it's one less team to worry about. Um, assuming I'm actually in charge to do the job properly, director of football, um, Luis Campos of Lille is the one I would go with. I think, I think he's an excellent, an excellent director of football. Um, I really like how he goes about his business. What he did at Monaco was incredible. And he obviously built that team. He's built a really good team at Lille. I think he would be the one for me. Um, 
an absolute genius in the transfer market. As far as manager, if I could convince Simeone, that's what I would do. Because I, I just think he's, I still think he's the best manager in the world. I know he's not for everybody, but I, I do think he's, I do think he's great. If I can't get him, I, I go knock for Bielsa. Now, Campos and Bielsa allegedly clashed a bit when they were at Lille, but I, I don't think I'd be all that bothered. Um, I go see, I go Simeone. Now I know it goes against the ethos of Arsenal and, and the style of play that we saw under Wenger, but go back before that to George Graham when they were winning titles under him. I mean, similar enough style of football. Um, given who's available, though, I mean Max Allegri will be the choice. And the great thing with Allegri is he's really adaptable and flexible, and he will work with whatever you give him to work with. He's not a diva. He's not a prima donna. He's just a winner. So with Campos picking the players and bringing them in and Allegri then working with them and developing them, that's probably, actually, yeah, that's probably what I'd go with. Um, yeah, I, I quite like that, actually. The other, the other option, I mean, they'd love Nagelsmann, but I don't think they'll get him. They, they'd quite like Rodgers. I don't know how Rodgers will work with Campos because Rodgers likes a yes man above him. So I don't know if that would work. Um, and I think the last question then is from Football Scribblers. What's the best transfer of all time, considering everything like value for money, commercial revenue, sell on profit if applicable, performances, trophies, magic moments, age, etc. Now, what transfers do you see having, having that impact in the future? Um, Cristiano's got to be up there b- both times. To United, what he was for them, how he developed the moments that he had, the incredible goals, league titles, European Cup, and then the enormous profit they made. And then obviously the same thing for Real, commercial for European Cups. Uh, they made amazingly made a profit when they sold him. I think Cristiano has got to be up there. But Riyad Mahrez for me is one that has always kind of stood out. I think Leicester paid about 500 grand for him. They sold him for 60 million. He won them a league title. He made them marketable in North Africa. Riyad Mahrez just stands out to me in terms of the sheer volume of profit made um, as as having been an absolute belter. Erling Haaland's going to be one of them. He just is. I saw a really good comparison I think, apologies if it wasn't, I think it was Miguel Delaney in The Independent said that when you look at Haaland, he brings back memories of Jonah Lomu. And the first time you saw Jonah Lomu play rugby, and he was just bigger and faster and stronger and different to everybody else. And Haaland's a little bit like that. But Haaland, like Lomu, is incredibly talented as well. He's not just a brute. Lomu had great hands. He had great feet. His body position was always excellent. Lomu was a tremendously talented rugby player, not just a physical freak. Haaland's a tremendously talented player as well. They did a goal analysis for Haaland in the independent. Delaney ran it, I believe. And it showed that despite how he looks and how he appears, the types of goals he scores are actually the type of chances that City create quite a lot. So maybe he is 
the ideal fit for what they want to do. We'll wait and see, but Haaland is going to be, wherever Haaland goes, he's going to win trophies. Now, the the sell-on thing is, is difficult. You might not get a whole bunch of that because it depends on how the market flexes for the next five to ten years. But commercially, I think Haaland's going to be uh, very, very popular. Um, outside of that, I mean, if someone could, could tempt Arsenal to part with Smith Rowe, I think he's got that kind of potential. Not not Haaland potential, but I think he could be a great signing for somebody at the right price because I think he's got star quality, absolute star quality. Um, and he's a really humble lad, and I think that plays well. But Haaland is the one. Haaland really is the one. Outside of him, you know, Anzu Fati and Pedri probably end up at Barca for most of their careers. Foden City won't won't part with. Uh, if Sancho moves, I don't know how. I don't know what Sancho's max value would be. So if you paid a hundred million from, are you ever going to get more than that back? Same thing with Joe Felix. So I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure how that would work. But Haaland for me is the one commercially trophies guaranteed hit. He he's the one all time. I think Cristiano's up there. Cantona is definitely up there. Think of the merchandise, merchandise United made over the years with him. Cristiano twice. Mares, And I suppose you could throw Vardy in and N'Golo Kante in, given how much they paid for them and what they would achieve for, for Leicester as part of that same team. But I think Mares is the, is the one from that team that was the, the biggest kind of blow-up because they paid such a small fee. They got a massive fee back from, I think he's still City's, is he City's record signing? Uh, he signed for Leicester. Doesn't say. I I seem to remember it being like less than a million quid, like half a million or something, re- something really silly. And then they got sixty million from back. Um. Yeah, I think I think Mares definitely needs to be considered for that. Um, I think that's it. I think that is all the questions for today. If I have missed any, I apologize. Um, I don't appear to have. Wait, let me just check one last time. Um, no, that appears to be it. If I've missed anything, I apologize, but uh, that's that. Take care of yourselves. Thank you to Guy. Thank you to Foxhound. Thanks, as always, for listening. See you tomorrow or Friday, as it will be. Uh, for you guys, tomorrow for me is Thursday and I won't be seeing anybody. Good luck. Mind yourselves. Take care. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.